If you'll take your Bibles this morning, please, to Luke chapter 9. We move into a new chapter. And today, I want to remark a little bit about last week's message there, where we closed with the Lord's charge to the parents of the daughter that had just been raised from the dead, his one and only daughter. And Jesus had said to them, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And this is in obvious contrast to what he had told the demoniac of Gadara, who was uh, relieved of his issue there and clothed in his right mind, wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus told him, no, you return to your home and declare. That word declare there is the word to herald. And herald how much God has done for you. There, chapter 8, verse 39. Why would Jesus not want this family then to speak of the glorious miracle that occurred in their house? Well, think about it. First of all, the people of the community could not help but notice that this girl who was declared dead was no longer dead. She was out and about. And it wasn't that she just kind of resuscitated there and and when you got to care for her now and no uh, she was she was fully restored and she's hungry teenage girl there get her something to eat <laughs> yeah and I imagine those mourners what the shock that they had when this girl that they knew was dead and they had been called now to uh, prepare for the funeral Professional mourners, you know, that's how they did their funerals in those days. This girl comes walking out and says, Whoa, we've never seen this before. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. But so, I, I studied several commentaries on that to see what, and there were various things that were offered. I won't go into any of the details. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what was he saying there to them? And then it occurred to me, when you read the ninth chapter, the opening verse of the ninth chapter, what, and I'm not going to read it right now, but, but when you read it there, and I'll, and I'll talk about it here in a second, but think about this. He's just telling them, uh, this girl's pre living presence is enough. You don't need to come after me and be a herald of the kingdom. You just go about your business. Now, notice there then how that ninth chapter opens. And there in verse number two, we read these words. Proclaim the kingdom of God. That's the same word that's translated declare back in chapter 8, verse 39. So, herald the kingdom, proclaim or herald the kingdom of God. In this message, we want to consider then the first half of chapter 9. As Jesus' ministry progressed, the fame of him was spreading abroad, and various opinions arose about who Jesus was. And this is the key. This is what it's all about. Who is this? Who is he? 
Indeed, in verse 22, Jesus directly addressed the subject with his disciples. Who do the crowd say that I am? And they offered various opinions about what they had heard from, from the crowds. The very ones here that had perplexed Herod, King Herod there in verses 7 through uh, 9. But these events, I think, were preparatory to his glorious revelation on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, which, by the way, was reserved to just the three that accompanied him into the girls' room. There, Peter, James, and John. This is in verses 38 through, I mean, 28 through 36. And we're not going to cover that today. That'll be in next week's message. But what I want you to see in the text today before us is the identity of Jesus as determined by the people in contrast to that of his disciples. And what, what, what's the importance of it? And so the focus here in verses, uh, um, the disciples then is verses 18 through 20. Jesus' identity is closely related. And here's the importance of it. His identity is closely related to the kingdom of God. And this kingdom was to be announced in this fallen world. Here's the issue. Everything that's happening today, worldwide, is happening because there is a struggle between two kingdoms. The one kingdom is, is not as obvious, but it is dangerous, the kingdom of God. And the prince of this world knows that he has lost it all. And he is desperate to regain it. All the turmoil, all the upheaval, all the problems are related to two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And our job is to herald the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean we, we can't be related to our, our present world because we live in it, but we're not of it. We're in it, but we're not of it. So what we read here in the first verse is that he called his disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim, and here it is, the kingdom of God. The Greek literally reads here, a her to herald the kingdom of God. Heralding is a, an official proclamation by one who has been delegated and sent by the king to make that announcement, that proclamation, to broadcast it around, abroad to broadcast it abroad. The, and what was it that they were to broadcast? The kingdom of God and to heal. So let, them, let us then consider, first of all, instructions for the king's heralds. 
instruction for the king's herald. This will be verses 1 to 6. Let me read them for you. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever, and, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So now notice the, the instructions in provide, provided in these verses prepared the apostles and those who would be uh, reached in through their preaching. See, Those reached would continue the work throughout this gospel age. The apostles began it. They were preaching it. Those who heard it believed they then would be called of God and would continue to proclaim that even after the apostles. So we read here in in Luke 24, verses 46 to 49, thus it, it is written about uh, written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, same word, heralded, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, Jesus is telling the apostles and those who believed on, on Christ through their, their ministry, you, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. In other words, you're not going to do this alone. You're going to do this through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So don't, go, don't do anything until He comes. So he said, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now he's, the Holy Spirit's come. We don't have any excuse. <laughs> he's here. And this is Luke's, of course, uh, recording of the Great Commission. So first of all, notice the nature of their work. Heralding the kingdom. The kingdom was to be proclaimed not, uh, and, and it's not a f just a future kingdom. It, it has a future aspect, which will be evidenced in, in, on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is gloriously uh, revealed to Peter, James, and John. That's what it's going to be like in the future. But right now, it's not that. But it's here, nevertheless. It's not, it's not going to come in the future sometime. It is here already because Jesus came. And uh, sadly, miss, many modern teachers of eschatology have missed this point. And they're looking forward to some 
earthly millennial kingdom there in the future somewhere. It's not coming. Matthew's parallel account clearly argues otherwise. It contains these words. There in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Literally, has drawn near. And the many references to that word, that use that word, prove that it's talking about something that has come. It is there. It's present. At hand means that the kingdom is present. Present in the person of the king, Jesus himself. And note what Jesus' uh, reply there uh, in, in Luke 17, verses 20 to 22, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. They said, when's this kingdom coming? He responded to them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look here, uh, here it is, or there, for the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's right here. And I'm the king. And I'm standing in your midst. The kingdom is present when the king is present. And he's here. So the launching of the kingdom was to be evidenced by miracles of healing and so forth. Uh, I don't restrict God. He is perfectly capable of healing anytime he wants to. I, I am against faith healers <laughs> and people who claim to have that, that power from God usually uh, are fraudsters. But Jesus prayed to the Father there in John 17 and verse 2. I, you have given him, referring to himself, authority over all flesh. That means he can do anything he wants. He can heal us or not heal us. He can do anything he wants. And the king then granted that same authority to the apostles. He gave them power. That is dunamis. Might, strength, ability, and authority, exousia, which means the right to do it. He gave them the, the ability to do it, and he gave them the authority to do it, the right to do it, over demons and disease. This miracle power was a clear sign of the kingdom's presence. Why did Jesus perform miracles? To prove he was the king. And you say, well, you, you know, we don't see so many miracles today. Ah, but he, th that, that's already settled. He, he came, he did the miracles, and he proved that he was the king. He's still the king. And if he wants to do a miracle today, he can do a miracle today just as easily as he did, did it when he walked the earth. I don't limit God. But the fact of the matter is, all you got to do is open the scriptures. There are the miracles documented, presented to you. He's alive, and he's still living, 
and he's still the king. So we read here that they, the, the, the apostles, after Jesus gave this, this instruction, departed and went through and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The gospel, the good news, the king is here. Repent and believe. So then secondly here in their pursuit of the kingdom's proclamation, the king was also uh, gave them orders concerning their care and welfare. And this in, is very important. They were to learn absolute dependence on the king for everything. That's the duty of government. The duty of government is to provide for its citizens, to watch over them, to protect them, to care for them. Not to give them everything they want, but it is to protect their right to get to work and to earn a living. And he should watch and make sure that everything is right for them in these, in these regards. And this is the, uh, the duty of the king. So he told them, don't take anything with you. Everything would be provided for them. They would see and recognize that God takes care of his own. They were to dress, go as dressed as they were, and carry only their walking sticks. Not weapons. These are not weapons. These are just walking sticks. And they were to take no bread and carry no coin in their belts. They were not even to take a bag or a script. The, the importance of that is, is seen here. The script was a, was a little bag that, that beggars or mendicants carried. It's called a mendicant's bag. And it was used for collecting alms. Sometimes mendicants collected alms for others, but uh, when people saw that bag, they recognized this, this guy is out collecting money for something. So don't even take that. A bag that would identify them as a beggar. And thus Jesus asked, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? He asked them later there in chapter 22, verse 35. When I sent you out without this script, or a knapsack to carry extra possessions, or or uh, anything, extra sandals. Did you lack anything? And of course the answer is no. Matthew adds in Matthew 10, verse 10, the laborer deserves his food. The Lord takes care of those he sends out. And again, we read in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, In the same way the Lord commanded those who proclaimed the gospel that they should get their living by the gospel. In other words, the gospel, their gospel work should take care of them. And in the Didache, which is a guidebook written for the first century church, we find these words in chapter 13, verse 1. But in Every true prophet wishing to reside among you is worthy of his food. 
The Lord never calls us to do anything that He will not uh, take care of us. He will never leave us to fend for ourselves. And I want to, I want to testify. It's, I, I figured out here the other day that I've been in the gospel work for nearly 60 years. And I have never lacked anything that I needed. Never. And I have always regarded the provision of the Lord as an indication of His approval and that I was in His will. I came to this church and we, we have never lacked anything. We've always been cared for. Which is given, which is clear evidence that the Lord is in it. And in our struggles with attendance and everything, it doesn't matter. He still takes care of us. And that is what Paul said there in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. That verse has always been precious to me. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Amen. What follows then may seem not to connect to these, verse, to, this, to these first verses, but a careful reading then will reveal the connection. Right after this, we have this, uh, the first incident here, which, uh, which we read here of Herod's perplexity, and this is verses 7 and 9. And that has to do with, again, the Lord's identity. This is the connection. This is the, the line that runs clear through this whole passage and leads us to the transfiguration. The Lord's identity and convert and and with with respect to that, the kingdom. In the second incident, we have here demonstrated the the Lord's gracious provision for the needs of a multitude, a great company. Who also then were asking, who is this? And they were, they were ready to make him king. And that's verses 10 to 17. The third then reflects a contrast with Herod. Jesus asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? Herod had reports. Now, the disciples have also heard reports, and so there he, Jesus is asking them to contrast this. And, they, and then Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, The Christ of God. Everything in this passage is designed to, pr to prove that confession. Jesus is the king, and his kingdom is here now, functioning on earth, and the miracles that he performed clearly prove that claim. Luke then develops two contrasting opinions about how the kingdom was to be perceived. First by the crowds, which I would call unbelievers, and then by the true 
followers of Jesus Christ. The first response was that of Herod the Tetrarch. Upon hearing about Jesus and his ministry, raised some serious questions in his mind. Who is this? And he's listening to the reports of the crowd who said, well, it, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead, or this is Elijah who has come, or another prophet that has come back to us. And, and I believe personally that, that Herod's questioning involves the fact that he sent out these 12 uh, there in the first part of it, and, and uh, when he's hearing these reports, uh, seeing what, that, what these 12 are accomplishing as they're preaching tour through the cities and villages, he's asking the question, who is this that they're proclaiming? And I think Herod represents here the secular world who says, if this is who I think it is, I'm in trouble. He was beginning to fear his uh, execution of John. If this is John the Baptist being raised from the dead, maybe he's going to come back and take vengeance on me. <laughs> he was a, clearly worried. He was afraid. But not with the fear of God. If he had the fear of God, it would be a different story. But that's not, that's not what's going on here. The fear of God would bring him to repentance. Later, some, some Pharisees, and I think the Pharisees also were scared. And they sought to frighten Jesus so that uh, he would seek seclusion. They didn't want him out there preaching, being so public and forward. So they thought to scare him. If I can, we can get him, get Jesus scared and out of the way, then we'll be, we'll feel better. Luke introduced uh, Jesus' lament over Jerusalem with this issue here in uh, chapter thirteen, verses thirty-one to thirty-three. And at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, "Get away from here." Herod wants to kill you. And what was Jesus' response? He said, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today as the evidence of the kingdom of God, today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finished my course. <laughs> the resurrection and ascension to be seated at the right hand of the Father where he must rule until all of his enemies are made the footstool of his feet. Do you believe that? <laughs> Jesus said, yeah, I'm going to die, but in the third day I'm going to finish the course. I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to be ascended to the Father's right hand, and there I'm going to rule and reign with unlimited power and authority. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. And not, in other words, I'm not going to go hiding. 
I'm not going to go into seclusion. I'm not fearful of Herod. I'm going to go about my business and keep doing what I've been called to do and what I've been commissioned to do. And I'm going to do this today and tomorrow and the day following. I am, my life is in my Father's hands. I'm not worried about a thing. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I think that's kind of a sarcastic statement. Because that's where the prophets were killed. And that's where Jesus will die. The true prophets. Which shows the judgment of God upon the city of Jerusalem. While we are assured that God installs all human leaders into government, we also believe that these are very, uh, these, even the very ungodly rulers are a serious, are never a serious threat to true believers. Let me, let me put that again here. While we are assured that God installs all leaders in human government, we also believe that these, that these who are very often ungodly rulers are never a serious threat to true believers, even when they kill them. For to die is for us to gain. And I believe this is part of God's Designed for the progress of his kingdom. No matter how violent the opposition, the kingdom will thrive. And I think when the, when the opposition is mo the most violent is when the kingdom is thriving the best. As Jesus then reassures us in the text before us. In verse number 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And I think there's an and here, but I think that should be translated but. But on the third day be raised. Victory. Then we go from that one down to the feeding of the 5,000. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that one, but, but just to share a couple of things with you. Herod's perplexity then is followed by this abbreviated account of the feeding of the 5,000. And a couple of observations are, are in order here. First, this incident affirms the promise that God always provides for his own as they pursue his will. And often he uses his own as a means to provide for even the ungodly. That's why I don't think pantries are a bad idea or charity is a bad idea. And that's what he did. He said to them, let's, let's feed this crowd. <laughs> and they, they said, we, this, this enormous crowd, we don't have enough money in our little... Uh, purse here to take care of this crowd. So what do we have? Well, there's a little boy with five loaves and two fish. That's enough. That's good. And they provided for the needs of the whole crowd. They ate all they wanted. And then they gathered up 12 baskets full remaining. 
So God take, took care of them. And he did so abundantly. Second here, the incident also provides the background for Jesus' question to his disciples in verse 18, Who do the crowd say that I am? Which then prepares the reader for Peter's confession, which which is found then in verse 20, which I already read. Although Luke does not record the response of the crowd to the miracle of the loaves and the fish, John does. We read there in uh, John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, notice it's, John calls it a sign. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Elijah, see, he promised there by Malachi in his closing words. And perceiving then, uh, then they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Hmm. So if Jesus was to be the king of his kingdom, and his kingdom is here, why would he not want the people to make him king? Why did he resist it? The problem is that it's the wrong people. And the way they expected that kingdom to come. The unbelieving Jews were ready to take things into their own hands and to force their understanding of the kingdom of God upon the world. And Jesus said, no. We're going to do it God's way. Which then brings us back to this issue of the will of God. The kingdom must follow God's plan, not ours. This is the will of God that must be done. So Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not our will, not our wants, his will. And I would also remind you, what is the next phrase of that prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Your kingdom come and your will, you take care of us in your way. Yeah, that's what he promised. So that brings us then to the conclusion. What true followers of Jesus must understand. I'm going to develop this a little more this evening uh, in our Bible study. But uh, let me just close this message with this in verses 18 through 26 here. We have uh, Jesus' instruction again to the twelve following Peter's confession. You are the Christ. He was the Son of Man prophesied in, in Daniel 7, to whom then the Father gave the eternal kingdom. Notice that. He gave him a kingdom that shall never pass away. So here is this seeming obstruction, his death at the hands of the civil governments of this world, particularly the Jews.
You know, we, we want to see victory. We want to see things move forward. We don't want to see this obstruction. But here, what Jesus is emphasizing is, yes, this has to come first. The will of God must be done. We want to see the kingdom come with power, as did the crowds that were feeding, that uh, were fed the the uh, the uh, the five thousand there that were fed the five loaves and the two fish, but Jesus stated to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, "Look here, it is," or "There," for the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. We don't look like the kingdom of God here. But we are. And why? He's here. The church is the tangible representation of the kingdom of God on earth during this age. We are the temple of the living God. God is among us. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has declared, I am your God, you are my people. So what can and must be observed is the behavior of its kingdom citizens, the true followers of Jesus Christ. So Jesus informs them of three things. First of all, they must deny themselves. This doesn't mean that we're, we're to try we're to try to be better. Christians out of our own lives he says we're to die to ourselves what is it what does it mean to die to yourself it means your old life has to end and you have to recognize a new life the life of Jesus in you Jesus must become your life. Dying to self does not mean depriving yourself to, to make Jesus, you know, I, I, you know there, I've got a lot of dreams. I'd like a new boat and a new house and a new car and I'd like to do this and I'd like vacations and I'd like to have this comfort and that comfort and this experience and that and this hobby and that hobby and I want to make sure that the Chiefs win the ball game today or whatever. <laughs> But I'm gonna grit my teeth and sacrifice. I wanted. I wanted. I'll. I'll. I'll, I'll contribute a little more to the Lord here today, because it, and just deny myself for a little while the thing I wanted. But I'm gonna work hard and get it anyway. But I'm gonna deny myself. That's not what it means. It means I'm through with me. I am over. I'm done. My life is gone. The only one who matters is Jesus. He is my life. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul said there in Galatians, I have been crucified 
with Christ. Listen to this. It is no longer I who live. Peter's life ended on that Damascus road. I mean Paul's life. Paul's life ended on that Damascus road. When Jesus died on that cross, Paul died with him. You died with him. I died with him. So now it's Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So what does he want? The life I now live in the flesh, and I'm still in the flesh, and I fight the flesh, and, but wait a minute, there's a new law, the law of the spirit of life, that's in me, who enables me to reject the law of sin and death. So the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 I'm dead. I'm not going to try to deny myself. I'm not going to try to die to myself. I am dead. Reckon, I'm reckoning that to be a fact by faith. And I do this in order that Christ should live through me his life in this world. And second of all, living then for oneself will not benefit the kingdom or the believer. He warns us. You want to continue to live your life it will not benefit you either you or the kingdom. For whoever would save his life will lose it. All the glorious things that you think you've accumulated, you know, the older I get, the more worthless the stuff is around me. Why did I accumulate all this junk? Now i got to get rid of it. What good is it? What good has it been to me? Ah, so, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it. The stuff that's really valuable, the things that will last into eternity, they're the things that, that we need to, to work for. So, what, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Wow. Wow. And then thirdly, living for oneself will also cause one to be ashamed of Jesus. Because uh, you go to that church? Or they, somebody will they'll start blaspheming Jesus and you'll say, I don't want to get, you know, I like those people and I want them to continue to like me so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Instead of saying, stop. Don't you know you're putting your life, yourself in danger by blaspheming? See, so Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. When he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father, 
and of the holy angels. Whoa. Don't be ashamed of me. I, that is, that's, I really think is the one great problem that most Christians have. They want to be liked and thought well of. But if they talk about Jesus too much, they won't be. <laughs> so they are ashamed of him. Shame. You know what? Jesus doesn't want his people to be shamed. They will be shamed. You know what our response to being shamed? Not to cringe and cower, but rejoice. Rejoice. Finally, there the last verse. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Most of us are going to have to wait till we taste death to see the to see the glory of the kingdom. But this brings us then to next week's message. So prepare yourself. Prepare yourself when they see the kingdom of God. And boy, there's there's some interesting truth. That is in that those verses that we will that maybe you haven't even thought of. So let's let's close. Father, thank you for your love to us, your mercy, your kindness to us, your grace in Christ Jesus. Lord, we're kingdom citizens, and the government of the kingdom takes care of its citizens well. We rejoice in that. We praise you and thank you. The, the kingdom of this world may not be too good about it, but you are. And Father, I pray that you will teach us what it means to live for you. Not just be religious, not just give you a week, an hour of our week, but our whole life. Our whole life so that the life of Jesus may be lived in us. And Lord, this is what you have planned for and what this gospel age is all about. It's Christ living through his people and advancing the kingdom. And we'll praise you and thank you for what you continue to show us for the glory of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.